I think I'm hardwired for optimism. And I think a big piece of that probably comes from the environment that I w- was in because I just, I had this belief. I'm like, things have to get better. There has to be better, you know, whether it's getting to know, like, you know, friends, families, or finding other ways to make a, like a safer, more predictable environment for myself, which for me was spending most of my time in the woods and I named all the animals and stuff. But I don't know. I think I'm just wired for optimism and my lens is always looking in a way of like, okay, how can we make this better? How can we, you know, leave it better than we found it, basically. And I think I've had that since I was really young. Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great day. Today's guest is a woman named Tracy Hulick. I first came across Tracy when I opened the front page of the Denver Post sports section. Yes, we still get the actual newspaper. Does anyone else? Um, And there she was running an ultra which really is not a big deal in Colorado. There's lots of ultra runners here. So I dug in a little bit. And what makes Tracy unique is that she was doing her first 50 miler with one kidney by choice. Tracy made the decision at an early age that she would donate a kidney someday. She literally just felt called to do it. And what intrigues me is the why behind the calling. Why does someone decide to do something that most people consider crazy? And I'm pretty sure that most people do not feel called to undergo optional surgery to give a part of their bodies to someone else that they don't know. Or if they do, it might be when they're older and they feel the need to give back to help someone else they've been through a lot in life. They don't necessarily find their calling when they're 12 years old. You know, I think throughout this episode, we get to the bottom of it, or at least we uncover part of the path to where Tracy is today. In a nutshell, like so many other people, she's healing one part of herself at the same time that she's tackling something else. And I think when you think about that concept, often you need to be tackling something to be healing something. Um, I have a feeling that Tracy actually probably left some things unsaid, but I also think she shared more than she ever has before. And that's all part of the process toward becoming the people we're supposed to be. Whew, are you excited? You're going to hear from her in a minute. But before we dive in, I want to make sure you're using the 20% discount code just for you on skirtsports.com, the best fitting, most comfy, cutest women's running and fitness apparel out there. No bias here, of course. (laughs) I can definitely say that we are the only women's athletic brand that truly includes everyone. 
So go to skirtsports.com and use the code RUNTHISWORLD20. It expires on Christmas Eve. So get it done. Get all those gifts. Buy yourself some good stuff and make yourself feel good. And forward it to some friends and tell people about this podcast. So then get on here and be part of this incredible movement. All right, everybody. Now it's time to get back to the show. So Tracy, this is so cool. You're sitting in my home studio. I know. I love it. it? Um, I just put that poster on the wall for you. It used to be just blank. Oh, okay. And the poster was sitting on the floor. Okay. And it doesn't really fit, but I wanted it on the wall. I like it. It's very inviting. (laughs) I feel soothed. Oh, that's so cool. I picked it up in um, Santa Fe on a trip I just did with my mom. Okay. I kind of got it for Wilder, but it's just pretty. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a little horse kicking around. And I'm a horse girl, so yeah. I like that. Yeah, we're kind okay. of like horses kicking around <laughs> <We> together. <are. laughs> um, but what's really cool is I first uh, came across you and your story when I opened the Denver Post just a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. maybe a month ago. And John Meyer wrote that piece on you about running, I think, a 50-miler? Yes. Yeah, with one kidney. Yep. How cool. <laughs> and, and so I wrote you down on my podcast list. I was like, I got to interview her someday. She's local. Maybe she'll come over. These are always better, you know. <laughs> and then we have like one degree of separation. We do. Because we, if what finally sealed the deal and made me reach out was we have a connection. Who is that? Uh, well, actually, we have two. Oh, we do have two. Yes. Because the one who connected us is not the one I'm actually thinking of right, right. now. So Sandy Steiner um, sent you the message about me. And then uh, it's also Betsy Hartley. Right, the connection you were thinking um and do you know that both of them have been on the podcast i do yeah i listened to both of their episodes as soon as this got set up that man i gotta do my homework oh yeah and they're both amazing i mean and what's so cool though is uh so bets so sandy's been a skirt sports ambassador for years um and she's a midwestern girl Mm -hmm. and is that the connection you have with her uh well she and i both went out to western states in 2016 because she was the they call it crew captain is the official name of the head crew person. Um, and she was also pacing a mutual friend of ours. So we were out there to support our friend David. And uh, you get to know someone spending that long with them in a van and in the middle of the night and you're all hungry and tired and crabby. And But it's the most amazing experience ever. So we really got to know each other well during that trip. It was about a week we spent out there. You know, that's uh, actually I'm learning something right now or thinking about this concept of you know, you're actually an endurance athlete, and many people listening are athletes themselves, but it's often the times when we support other athletes who are really going through the shit yes. that we that we dig deep ourselves. Mm-hmm. So how cool is that? Yeah, it's just so much more meaningful crewing and pacing somebody else. Because I we all knew that it was David's dream to do Western States and to finish this thing. And to be out there, because I was out there with him during those gritty nighttime hours, so I was the sunset to sunrise pacer for him. So I picked him up at Forest Hill, and we went all the way through to highway, whatever it is. I should know this. I'm bad with details. But to see him come in, and he threw up like 400 meters from me. into Wait, like like threw up, like just threw all his food up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whatever was left in there. And right, just to be but- with him through all that and to get through the nighttime Mm. hours and to get his stomach to settle and then to be out there with him when the sun came up and he finally turned he was able to eat something and he turned to me and he smiled and I started to cry because I'm like his dream's gonna come true because I wasn't sure if it would or not and his (sighs) wife even thought about trying to get him to pull out of the race but just to see I have goosebumps right now I know his dream was gonna come true and I saw it 
that's so much better than anything I could do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, if that was you and it has been you and people have seen that in you, but it feels different. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's you, you're just living it. When it's someone else, you can see it. Yeah. I know. Yeah, like we get out of our own way to yeah. witness it for someone else. Totally. And then it's another gift that we can give to replay our experience to them. Yes. And it was so fun recounting to David, who was the primary person who did it, but to have his internal story illustrated by the rest of us. I know. It was awesome. Oh, my gosh. Okay, uh. well, we're going to come back to running. <laughs> so you're already digging into the Kleenex, which are there usually because we cry. But right <laughs> now, it's because we're all freaking sick. Are you sick right now? No, not oh. at all. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, well, you look good. Um, I am a little bit. I mean, not too bad. I promise I won't get you sick. Okay. Um, but so so let's just let's go back to this other one degree of separation mm-hmm. and talk for a moment about Betsy yes. and then her partner in her business, which is a dude who you're dating. Yes. So yes. you just came back from Cabo? Yeah, we just got back last night. I got home at about nine o'clock last night. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wow, you look fresh. A nice bronze tan. Yeah. Had a real shower. I'm not covered in sand and salt. I was wondering why you look so amazing. <laughs> I'm glowing. <laughs> I am. Glowing. I have the Mexico glow right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you're in like, are you in an early stage of relationship too here? It's been um, since... About April, I would say. So part of the glow is part of that? Yeah, we... uh, (laughs) I know, I'm digging in. We did the first I love yous this (gasps) week, so... Oh my gosh, that's huge. I know. Have you blasted that on social media? Like, this is it. It's out there. I don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, well, you just did. I know. (laughs) You are right. You are one of those people that people just, like, tell you the things. And, yeah. But that's huge. Like, the L word. So how did it happen? Like, who said it first? Well, I said it first, and I was intending on doing it in Mexico. And the whole, maybe five weeks prior to that, I was thinking in my head, like, okay, what are the top five ways I would like to do it you know because I've never said it first I'm always the girl where the guy says it first because I will wait a hundred years because I never will say it first wow and then I just kind of say it back because it's the thing you do but have you always meant it no oh (laughs) because you're trying to please and make the moment great it's like the nice girl or that you know like someone says I love you you say it back someone proposes marriage you're like sure you know you just you accommodate and so this was the first time that I really was like man like I got to figure out how I'm going to do this and say this. And so I had this like, top three list in my head. I didn't go with any of those. We were sitting on the balcony of our room. It was the night before his race. And one thing he loves doing is stargazing and looking for planets and looking for aliens and all this stuff. And I just think it's really endearing and cute. You know, he's just, that, that he marvels so, at the sky. And yes. so I like to be with him while he marvels. And so he has this app on his phone where he can point it at the sky and see the constellations and things. And I'm sitting there, my heart's racing. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Just be 51% courage and 49% fear. Don't let fear win. Just say it. <laughs> and so I got real serious. I'm like, I need to tell you something. Oh, no. <laughs> I made it like and a big looked, deal. He's like, well, what is it? And I said, I love you. You don't have to say anything back. And I launched into my whole thing. Of Wait, like, you didn't just say, you gave him like an explanation. I did. <laughs> like I've been waiting. I, like I've almost said it, but Betsy was right there. And I can't drop the first L on you. And Betsy's right there. And, and then he said it back. Oh, and I didn't expect it. And then I, of wow. course, cried because I'm a girl and it felt good. And You know. Yeah. I'm riding the high of that whole thing still. That is huge. Yeah. And he was there for a race and you were there to support. Yes. And yet this became maybe one of those big growth moments in your life. 
It really was. Because you're very brave doing that. I mean, you kind of just like rolled through this little comment like, oh, someone proposes marriage. You say, sure. I did that. So, once. yeah, I saw that, you know, there was a divorce that happened maybe about a decade ago. Uh, almost exactly. Yeah. 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 2008. So w- let's go back in time a little bit. Like, okay. was this, you know, your long term high school sweetheart or something? I don't know. I don't know anything <laughs> about him. <laughs> no, he was someone. Um, he was a bar manager of a campus bar in college, the coolest one. So it was Wando, it was in Madison. And. I was a total bar fly. I drank a lot. I was Miss Social in the bar scene. And he was a bar manager. And I developed a little crush. And we started dating. And he proposed on our one-year dating anniversary. And I was 23. You know, I had a lot of stuff still to work through. And I didn't really know who I was. And I just always kind of thought that, okay, well, if some dude who's like, okay enough proposes to you you just go with it because it might be your only shot to get married that was just interesting in my head but you loved him at the time yeah i'm pretty sure okay i mean to the capacity that i could love someone well because it's interesting because hindsight is hindsight yeah and so when you say like i didn't really know who i was like at the time it's easy to look back and be like i was 23 right who was that chick you know yeah but when you're in it you might have just I don't know. I felt like I was doing the best I could. Yeah. And I also felt like I owed it to him because mm. he helped me finish college. I mean, I was on academic probation three times. I'm amazed I wasn't kicked out. Like why? You just weren't a great student? I was working yourself? three jobs. So I would much oh. rather work. I had a killer resume. So I was doing great in the workforce. And I just, to me, a degree was just a piece of paper. I knew right. it didn't really matter too much. But to certain employers, it would matter. Yeah. So I just wanted to skate through and be done. And so... I ran out of financial aid. I couldn't afford school myself. And so he actually took this extra job and made this extra money and got a loan from one of our friends and he helped me finish school. And he made it so that I didn't have to work full time to finish school. And that was a really big thing. And so I... You were connected, but there was something missing. Yeah. He was like a, a supporter of you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we want the person we're with to support us. Right. But we want a whole nother complex level of connection and yeah, yeah, and intimacy too. Right. So what happened? How I, long? Yeah. How long were you married? Uh, seven years. So oh, we wow. were together okay. for ten total. Mm-hmm. And now with my grown-up lens, looking back on it, I can see how I've always been really growth-minded. I like getting outside of my comfort zone and I'm a really curious person and I'm fired up and passionate about like 30 different things and so being wired like that and you're in a safe environment you start to grow and challenge yourself and become a different person and I think he really wanted me to stay as that 23 year old peppy Mm. I'll just go along with whatever you want to do kind of person because he didn't even like it when I got into running marathons I think there's a whole lot that came after marathons and I remember signing up for my second one he goes really you're going to do another one because he liked for me to be able to go out oh. Friday nights with him and his friends. But if I'm doing a Saturday morning long run, I'm not staying out with you till 2 a.m. drinking Captain and Cokes. I'm just right. not going to do that. Right. So that's what started it. Wow. And, okay. Yeah. So so you guys were, um, you were losing your connection. And maybe he just wasn't growing at the same rate or not at the same rate, but in the same direction. Exactly. I mean, you were just growing separate. Yeah, it became really clear our values were different. Mm -hmm. Like he was much more into um, the way things looked and having these great genes and all these things to keep up with the Joneses kind of thing, which 
I mean, I did some of that, you know. I mean, I went out and I bought like a $200 shirt once and felt a little empty about it. But for about five minutes, I'm like, whoa, like self-worth. This is amazing. But it's he dug into that way more than I did because I was getting so much more into fitness and running and health and just trying to give myself some white space to figure myself out. And you can't do that when you're half a bottle into a captain, you know, right. out at a bar till 3 right. a.m. Like it just... Okay, actually, let's segue. Let's talk about drinking. Because, uh, you know, you're, you're now dating a guy who wrote an incredible memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk, let's give Spencer some props. <laughs> okay. Someday, Spencer, we'll try to get you on the show here. <laughs> um, what's his book called? Appetite for Addiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can get that on Amazon. Or, yes. Okay, yep. Yeah. Um, you know, I read it. And he is so open and out there about things that are dark and Mm -hmm. difficult and like make you just 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 grimace because like you can see him just destructing yes throughout this book Mm -hmm. and um and it's hard for anyone to admit that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. right yeah and he did it so beautifully and so openly and without shame i feel like there wasn't an ounce of shame in that whole book which is what really grabbed my heart as i was reading because that's really how i met him is we started following each other's blogs two years ago. And then in March of this year, he reached out to me and asked if he could send me a copy of his book. I thought, well, that's really nice. And that was a catalyst of the whole thing. So we started these phone calls and daily FaceTimes as I'm reading his book and got really connected. And I mean, that's how Whoa, it started. I didn't do phone calls and daily FaceTimes <laughs> with Spencer. Probably a good thing. We might have connected too much. Um, but, uh, but you know, there's definitely shame during the journey. But it's when you can shake that off afterwards and you come out the other side. Yes. So I bring this up because you mention it quite a bit here. Like you met your former husband in a bar because you used to drink till the late hours. Mm-hmm. And you weren't, you know, applying yourself in school. And, you know, I just wondered, like, did you... Do you feel like you had uh, a tendency towards an issue with drinking or, you know, using alcohol to in some form? I did. I think it's some kind of, I don't know if I would say it's an escape route, but at that time in college, it was coming out of, you know, living with my parents and my family to finally being on my own and creating my own environment. So being away from the environment that I felt like wasn't very good for me, I had to unwind a lot once I got to college and got that freedom. And alcohol was how I did it. It just kind of softened the blow of dealing with that stuff. And so what stuff in particular? There was, um, I have never really talked publicly about this stuff. Um, Well, you just be as as much as you want to share. I mean, I understand too, like there's other people's feelings and, Mm -hmm. you know, to think about. Yeah, it was... um, I'd say a very, for me, being a pretty sensitive person, it was what I consider an unhealthy environment. There was a fair amount of um, verbal abuse and aggression and violence and um, people disappearing a lot. So it was my parents and then my brother. And so things would get really volatile and blow up. And you know, I would, of course, be hiding out in my room where I would, my room was on a, a porch, basically. So I could get on my little chair and flip the little hook and go out the screen door into the woods so a lot of times I would just go outside while the stuff was going on and at any given day like my mom might decide to take off for a few days or my dad would leave for a month or something or my brother because he's nine years older I had a little more freedom to get out and kind of make his own path out of the house so there was no stability in terms of 
who was there or what today was going to be like or what version of this person are they going to show up as and um that didn't work well for me wow yeah so that bred a lot of independence so from your earliest memories of your family it was always like this yeah okay yeah um have has your family mended a little bit i think to some degree i mean the dynamics are very different my parents they actually stayed married that whole time and i'm happy to say they actually have a really good relationship now Wow. which is amazing <laughs> so uh, but even though so w- i guess was the like verbal abuse and the you know negative dynamic towards each other or towards the kids it was generally towards each other mm-hmm. and my brother kind of got involved here and there sometimes too okay depending on where the target was set so i really learned to be very silent very perfect like nothing out of place because it, don't if, ask for help like to stay out of the way like because it would trigger an episode or i think so that's as a kid that was my impression of what made my mom the target a lot of times was like like one time i specifically remember my dad went off because one of his t-shirts wasn't folded the way he liked in the drawer so it was like at a granular level like everything must be perfect must be a certain way wow yeah um i can understand why you were called to do things to help other people then that this like massive layer of compassion Mm -hmm. somehow formed within you i mean it could go either way yeah you can shut completely down and ball yourself off right and it sounded like you did that a little bit as a kid i did when that was the safest thing to do okay but then undoing all that wiring of okay i can only do something if i'm going to be good at it and perfect at it and a plus at this and you know, don't speak up or have an opinion because inherently someone's going to think something different than you. So it's better to just not say anything. And so it took, that was a lot of the unwinding that I was doing in college was just stripping that stuff away to Got figure, it. okay, who's really under here? And not just this version of what you had to become to get safely out of the house. Right. Without kind of leaving any marks behind. And you talk about, like, that's a really cool way to talk about it is undoing the wiring because mm-hmm. a lot of people never get there. Yeah. Or they're much older when they realize, like, there's some serious scars yes. that are going to take some time. Right. How do you do that? Did you have therapy? I did. Uh, four years worth, four different uh, doctors that I went through just trying to find the right fit. And so I finally found the right person. He was based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin at a what was the place called it was called transformations so what tell me about that because a lot of times so first of all i think people have a barrier towards getting help Mm -hmm. when they know they need it because a it costs money and money's often part of the problem yeah so they're like i don't and then they don't know where to start and then they might pick a therapist and it doesn't feel right yeah and then it's hard to break up with the therapist because like well they're the expert i'm just sitting here not connecting with them do i just is like so many fault? other things just yeah. sit and deal with it and think well this is good enough it's better than nothing when right you know we have the power to choose or to break up with them whenever we want to right yeah so it took you a few doctors i mean this is it so did. yeah what advice do you give people who are like in the process of i know i need to go see someone I'm afraid they're not going to be a good fit. Like, what do you tell people? Oh, man, no one's ever asked me this before. Probably because I don't really talk about this with anybody. This is is important stuff, though, because this is where people get stuck. And they can't can't do that self-improvement that you have been able to 
tackle. Yeah. Well, so I think there's aspects of our lives and things that we need to learn that we can't just teach ourselves. We need someone else. Like as much as we would like to be the expert on us, we can't always be the expert on us. So having the humility and the courage to go to someone who could give you what you need. You know, like I get a lot of that now from podcasts and things like that. But back then I just, I needed someone to be in the trenches with me that I felt safe and comfortable with. And um, I started, God, I don't even make that first call. I think I was married at the time. So I think he may have actually made the first call for me to get that first appointment set up. And so I was just hoping that Grace would do the work. It's like, okay, just whoever the next available person is. And I gave them kind of these ramifications of the kind of person, you know, like a male between like 50 and 65 with this kind of vibe. And do you have anybody like that? So that's how I started is really thinking, okay, who can I picture getting most comfortable across the couch from? Right. Yeah. So they set me up with someone that honestly instantly made my skin crawl. And I probably went to him for like seven or eight months. And it was finally, we did an exercise where he asked me to close my eyes and he was like, talking through some scenario or whatever and I didn't feel safe enough for my eyes to be closed and so he was somewhat like checking my heart rate at the time and my heart rate got way elevated because I didn't feel comfortable so when I left I'm like fuck this like I am not going anywhere with this guy yeah and it's you're right because you're also an athlete yeah and so there's there's something to be said about powering through right yeah I know Because you feel like you're quitting or you're giving up and you're not yeah I had to realize it was just adjusting my sales yeah and the sooner I could do that the better it was for me because I knew I mean that was part of this whole thing is listening to my gut more and allowing myself to be more intuitive which I think I can't speak for men but I think we as women have that in us if we can be quiet enough we know that it's there so I finally started honoring that and being like, all right, this doesn't feel right. It's a waste of my time and theirs. I come in blocked off because I think this guy's a jerk or whatever, like, or isn't really listening. Right. So I got better at kind of picking them off. Like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> so you finally, you found your match. I did. In this world. And, um, and you think like professional therapy has been really helpful for you. It was. I just needed someone... I don't know, like I wanted like homework and things to do and I wanted them to speak to me in a way that resonated. I didn't need some textbook thing or something I know you say to everybody else and I don't know. I just needed someone to be a little grittier and hands-on that I felt like I could trust. So you hear that, everyone? You know, (laughs) if you, trust is very important. Listen to your gut and Mm -hmm. if you feel that you are just sort of stuck and you need some help to get through, like, do it yeah what's the big deal right and be okay envision that person you think you could be comfortable across the couch from Mm -hmm. yeah and then if they make your skin crawl get the hell out of there (laughs) and go on to the next one yeah it's a pain in the ass and but i think the long term in the long term it's the best move you could have made oh absolutely yeah Mm -hmm. so okay i want to go back to when you were i think 12 or 13 years old um seventh grade Yes. Yeah. So you you had uh, joined the cross country team. Yep. I was right? excited because that was the first year in Illinois or in Wisconsin. Sorry, that you could actually be on a school team. So yes. Seventh grade was the youngest age you could do it. Yes, I share that same experience. Oh, except oh, it was sixth so for us. Okay. But anyway, it was you know middle school, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And you could finally do a sport. And uh, you there's a memory that. It's a powerful memory that really mm. stuck with you all these years, and it really speaks to who you are, um, I guess, from the core. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this story you were told and 
and what happened later on. Sure. Yeah, it was the very first day of seventh grade. And it was, I think it was a life studies class that we were in. And the teacher asked the group to start the class, um, asked us if there was anything interesting that happened to us or our family members over the summer. So some kids were like, oh, I got a skateboard. Like, I went to California. And this one girl raised her hand and said that her uncle had donated his kidney to her cousin and that they were both doing fine. I had Just never... Like- just like matter of fact, like yeah. I, w- I went to Disneyland and the other person, my uncle donated a kidney. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I will never forget, it was that immediate instant after she said, I'd never heard this before. I didn't know that was a thing. I thought, wow, like that's so awesome. Like how cool is it that you can save someone's life by sharing a part of you and they're both fine. Like I think I would do that one day. You know, it just seems so natural to think that way. But in that same instant that I had that natural reaction, Everybody else broke out into this conversation, including the teacher, saying things like, that's crazy. I could never do that. That's so risky. What if he needs that kidney back one day? And I'm just sitting there, and I was floored. I'm like, did we not just hear the exact same thing? Like, they're fine. Like, like her cousin's life is saved, and they're doing fine. Like, what the heck? So somehow, you know, seventh grade, you're not self-aware. But in that moment, for whatever reason, I'm like, well, it must mean something that I immediately felt like this and everybody else in the room felt the opposite way. Like, I'm going to do this someday then. It must be important. So I made a promise right there in seventh grade, the first day, that with my curled bangs and everything else, that like when I was a grown-up, that I would donate a kidney. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I have to share with you a story when I was in, I think, seventh grade. I watched Julie Moss crawl across the finish line of this crazy race called the Hawaii Ironman on NBC's Wild World of Sports. And she had like pooped in her pants and she was totally delirious and people were like, you can do it. And then someone ran by her like a few meters before the actual finish. So she didn't even win. But this was one of the most dramatic moments that ever happened in the Ironman, definitely put on the map. And so many people watched that and thought, that looks horrible and disgusting. Why would you ever put your body through that? And my reaction Mm. was, wow, that's so cool. I got to do that someday. Granted, this is not giving up a part of my body, but it's that idea that there are certain things that people are drawn to do even though for the majority of the population it the, yeah. it has the exact opposite calling yeah. right mm-hmm. why is that like we talked a little bit about your upbringing and your background like why is it that you were the only one in the room that felt that way what is it about you i think a part of it i think i'm hardwired for optimism and i think a big piece of that probably comes from the environment that I w- was in because I just, I had this belief. I'm like, things have to get better. There has to be better, you know, whether it's getting to know, like, you know, friends, families, or finding other ways to make a, like a safer, more predictable environment for myself, which for me was spending most of my time in the woods and I named all the animals and stuff. But I don't know. I think I'm just wired for optimism and my lens is always looking in a way of like, okay, how can we make this better? How can we you know, leave it better than we found it, basically. And I think I've had that since I was really young. I think so too. Yeah. And you know, part of me says it's compassion because it's about helping someone else, but it's also about you in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's selfless. It's not selfish, but there's something about this journey Mm -hmm. that's about you as much as it is about the 
person you may help someday. I know. Is it about, you know, helping you feel like you really do have value or you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think I've thought about that a little bit and I, for whatever reason, ever since I was very little, I'm very aware of death and our mortality and how much time we have here. And I think a lot of it's driven by that as well. It's like, I'm not going to wait till someday. I'm not going to put this stuff off. It's like, I'm very aware I could get like killed in a car crash on the way home from this interview. Like that could happen. It's possible. So to have, I have a pretty strong sense of urgency about things yeah. and it's always, it's for the good stuff. Yeah. You know, like I wanted to do that 50 miler, I wanted to donate that kidney. I wanted to move out West. I wanted to, you know, it's, I have this urgency that's just hardwired. <laughs> it's like when you decide you go, it's like a fire. Yeah. Like I can't not think about it. Once I decide or I set my sights yeah. on anything really, it just, it's always with me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit or a lot about this process of actually donating a kidney. So some people listening are probably, this will be their story yeah. that you heard in seventh grade. They're going to be like, whoa, mm-hmm. I got to do that someday. And we have had um, a kidney transplant recipient on the show. Really? Sam Grace. Oh, I'll yeah. have to listen to that. She's amazing. So Aww. yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Um, so uh, I was thinking a little bit about this too, because you know there are dangers, there are risks, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know the stats on them. But my little story is that this summer I gave blood um, to help support Megan Bigelow, the shooting mm-hmm. victim, and her family. She's a skirt sports ambassador, and I hadn't given blood in like a decade or more. I, I can't remember the last time I gave blood. Yeah. And now they actually take it by your body weight. So I gave like more than you used to give like a pint or a half pint whatever I gave right so I gave blood and I have not recovered and this was this summer and it has really taken a toll on my body I'm just now I think starting to recover and that was just given a little blood right (laughs) yeah so you know yeah I'm not I would probably do it again I would try to figure out how to recover faster but like that was really hard on my body were you just were you tired is that what you noticed or what um, was different? Oh, yeah. I I just actually I got my blood work done and my iron just hit the floor. Oh, so, okay. you know, there's some other things, too. But like it just wiped me out. It took me out. It was very, very hard. Wow. Um, but anyway, so my point is like that's just giving blood. Mm-hmm. That's just giving a little bag of blood to help somebody else. Right. You did a lot more than giving a little bag of blood. Um, tell us a little bit about like what are the risks and what is the recovery rate for you and the you know and tell us more about too the kind of people who are on a list who may or may not ever get a kidney and how they do the matches I just want to hear the process okay yeah um well I'll start with the risks and honestly I didn't I didn't pay a lot of attention to that because I just I just knew that that wasn't going to be me the only risk associated with it that I really gave any mind to is that they said it could take up to a year for your endurance to come back unless you're in that really super small subset of people that have long-term complications you may never be able to run you know marathon distance or longer again and I knew it was a really really tiny percentage and I thought well I don't think I would be called to do this if that was going to be me but I was willing for that to be me in order to do this thing you know that would be okay okay yeah so that was one of the complications I I mean maybe there's been a person or two that have died during surgery it's just so routine and so common that 
I mean, that wasn't even something I thought about. And so how about the person's point, your teacher who said, well, what if he needs his kidney back someday? Like, what's that all about? Yeah, I get bumped to the top of the list. So it's a point system for the list. And so I get four points right away if my remaining kidney, if something happens to it. So I'm pretty much at the top if that happens. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Because that's a little security. (laughs) It definitely is. Yeah. And that's rare to happen for someone who donates to have, you know, kidney disease start or something like that. Yeah. Because the medical testing we go through to be a donor is insane. And they go through all your background. And it's, I mean, I've had friends call it the million dollar workup. Like you will never get a health screening like that in your life again. Wow. Yeah. And so once you are declared like fit to donate a kidney, Mm -hmm. then what happens? Then um, I, since I'm a non-directed donor, I was able to pick the date I wanted to do it. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. And so I was living in Wisconsin at the time and weather is not great a lot of the time out there. So I chose it really specifically based on the kind of weather I wanted to recover in because I wanted to be able to be out in decent weather and, you know, I wouldn't be able to run or do anything rigorous for a while. So I wanted to be able to be outside as much as I could. So I chose May 23rd. So I just, I picked the day and being non-directed, I was able to tell them how I wanted it to go. So like if I wanted to um, just find someone who needed a kidney and get matched for them, I could do that. Or I chose to do a national donor chain where multiple people could get kidneys because of mine. Um, should I maybe describe that? Since? Yeah, okay. I, <laughs> I think that is sounds absolutely incredible. And I also want to let people know that they, we're going to put a link to your blog in the show notes oh, because there's some incredible stuff on there. And you, you do outline this process a little more. And yes. it is just... It's absolutely inspiring. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah, but for a donor chain, um, I really view this as the most effective altruism you could ever do. And if you want to be a non-directed donor, this is a way to make your ripple effect that much bigger because multiple people can get kidneys. So let's say that you need a kidney and we'll say, Tim says, you know what, Nicole, I love you. I'm going to donate my kidney to you. So he goes and gets tested and finds that he's clear to donate, but he's not a match for you for whatever reason. So he can say, all right, as long as Nicole gets a kidney, I will donate mine to whoever needs it. So then you guys are uploaded as a pair into this registry, and everyday pairs are uploaded, just like that, where you have someone who wants to donate and a recipient, but you don't match. So all these pairs are uploaded, and they just wait for a non-directed donor to just want to donate and to do a chain. So like that was what happened in my instance. And so my transplant coordinator, about two months before my intended surgery date, put my information out there into the database or however it works, and they wait to get a bid from someone who they think that their kidney or that the recipient would be a good match for me. So they wait for that first bid, and then I was using the UW Transplant Center in Madison. So then they went through and looked at everything and said, yep, this looks like this would be a good healthy transplant. We'll lock this in. This is now Tracy's recipient. And from there, the computer links more people together. So my kidney went to a woman in Colorado Springs. That morning, her husband donated then to keep the chain going forward, and his kidney flew to the Oakland area to a man. And then that man's daughter donated the same day. Hers flew somewhere else. And then there was two more... One more stop after that that I haven't heard about. So you started the the chain? Yes. Oh my gosh, all these links. You guys need to have donor chain parties. I know. You did have a, a kidney reunion, right? Yes, in January. And I didn't want that for a long time because I really just, I didn't donate to have someone be like, oh, Tracy, you're the best. You saved my life. Like, I didn't need any of that. I just... I kind of just wanted them to throw it in the cooler and like kick it down the way and be like, good luck. I hope you do great things with it. And I just wanted my life to go back to normal. Yeah. But 
she and I were in touch starting about three weeks after surgery because she had sent a letter to the transplant center. And so we're emailing and every email she's asking, she's like, can we please meet? I know you like Colorado. Like I would meet you anywhere in the entire state if you would just come. <laughs> I'm like, okay, like I didn't need it, but clearly she did, you know? So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll honor that I'm going out there to visit friends anyway. And so we did this kidney reunion at the hospital because I thought it'd be cool to go to the building where, like part of me got there first. I just think that's kind of neat. Oh, that's so awesome. It was very weird <laughs> to think of it that way. But I, of course, I mean, I knew it would be a big deal, but I just went by myself. And meanwhile, she's there and she had six friends and family members with her. And there was like 25 people from the hospital staff there just watching. So I just roll in, I'll chill, I'm going to go do a hike after, and it's like this whole thing, and there's a TV camera and a photographer, and their media person, and all this stuff. Oh, wow. It was very surreal. Yeah, but you know, I understand why. Yeah. Because these are the things that help trigger that same emotion that got you to put it in the back of your mind at, you know, 13 years old. Yeah. And keep these chains going. Right. Oh, so it sounds too like you were trying to connect with other people who donated kidneys who were athletes to try to hear their stories and you yeah. know help yourself in your path to recovery and you mm-hmm. couldn't really find that many. Right. I was borderline desperate in those days. Like the clock was ticking down, getting ready for surgery. I'm like, please let there be an ultra marathon or with one kidney, please just let me find it. And why? Because you wanted comfort knowing you could recover or you could go back to this sport. I just wanted proof. Yeah. Even though I felt in my gut that I would be fine. I just, I wanted, Mm -hmm. there was enough worry I was hearing from other people. Like, what about running? What about running? It's, that was always the second thing people would ask me when I told them I was donating. The first was why. The second was, what about running? Because everyone thinks that you have to be sedentary and that you can't have salt and that you can't drink and like right, I mean, that's what people right. think post-donation mm-hmm. none of that is true and so I just I wanted that proof and yeah I couldn't find hardly anything I found one article about a guy who declared he was going to do I think it was Leadville 100 after his donation so I actually reached out to him he's like no nah, I didn't train enough so I didn't even do it ah shoot <laughs> here I thought you were like what I was looking for so you started a website I did yeah it's kidneydonorathletes.com And I really grew out of me getting the courage to post on my Instagram about my journey through recovery back to running again. And it was, I mean, maybe every other week or sometimes every week, I get a message from someone I had never met and they were either a potential donor that was an athlete that was nervous like I was, or they were a donor that was an athlete they'd already donated saying, oh great, I'm so glad you put this out there. I couldn't find anything back when I was doing this. And I keep getting these messages and I'm making these connections and I'm like, well, like maybe I can make a bigger platform for this. And so I just got that idea beginning of August. And actually, thanks to Spencer, he was really helpful and pushing me along and giving me ideas and helping me with the stuff that I don't like doing, which is details. And by September 23rd, I had the website launch. I was registered with the state. I'd applied to be a nonprofit. I had a whole bunch of people lined up with their stories already because it's great because they write it and send me the pictures and then I just do a little editing and post it. Yeah. And I have a backlog of people waiting to share their stories. Yes. So you guys need to get over there because you're going to have a healthy dose of inspiration. <laughs> yes. Um, and it is called kidneydonorathlete.com. We repeat yes. that. We'll put that in the show notes too because I think uh, those kinds of stories are, they help everybody. Yeah. They're the ones I wish I would have found. And it's, I think I've kind of figured it out is that in general, especially us non-directed donors, I would say we're very modest about it and it's hard to talk about. I never would have pictured me doing something like this a year ago at all, but giving it a platform. So then it's not about them, it's about the message. Right. You know, and they can put their message on something with other people and it doesn't feel so like 
hey, look what I did. It's just it's helpful. Right. It's not boastful. Absolutely. Which I think is the distinction people have a hard time making. Yeah, so why? I this reminds me of um there was a like a celebration banquet that I went to. It was early October of last year and it was to honor all the people that had donated in the last year at that transplant center. And the keynote speaker went up and her name was Denise, I wanna say. And she started off by saying that she donated 16 years prior to her best friend's husband. And she hasn't spoken publicly about her donation in 15 years and how that's the biggest mistake of her life. Because it's hard to tell people what you did because the reactions you get are very uncomfortable. I mean, people telling me like, oh, you're an angel. You're so noble. It's so amazing. And the common thread of us donors is like, it's just something we felt compelled to do. It, like we didn't even have a choice like we just had to do this thing and so getting that is real uncomfortable do people also judge you the other way like why would you do that or do you mostly um, hear positive i'm just curious yeah it's it's all positive now pre-donation i got a lot of negative stuff like what are you doing wow. why would you do that and it usually launched into them going on some tangent about how they never they don't think they could ever do it so how could i so it was about them no it right. wasn't about me no it was you were the mirror Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay, so you donated. This was how long ago? Uh, May 23rd of 2017. Wow. I know. You're over a year out. Yeah. So then you've since then recovered. I mean, you look yes. absolutely amazing, the most robust, glowing person I've ever <laughs> seen. But again, it could be because you just said, I love you. <laughs> I know, and I have my Mexico tan. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what was that recovery really like? Did you ever regret your decision? Or did you hit any lows during that time? I definitely hit some lows. I never regretted it, but... I tried really hard to mentally prepare myself that my activity level would drop drastically and I'd be really tired for a while. And as much as you can conceptually think about what that's going to be like, like I bought a bunch of books, I had a bunch of food frozen, my apartment was super clean, you know, I had all my ducks in a row. There's no way to know what that's going to feel like till you're in it. And then I had kind of a mini identity crisis during that too. It's like, well, who am I if I'm not running, I'm not fit, I'm not working out, I'm also not working, you know, and contributing right. and like helping my employees because I've been in management for a while. Like I'm not helping them, I'm not there. Like, And you already gave the kidney, so now you don't have that to look forward to in I life. I know. <laughs> it's kind of like after being done with a big race, like yeah. like the post-race depression that some people yes. get. It was very much like that. But and that's really common bigger. with donors actually to have. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. They, talk, they talk to me about that quite a bit leading up to surgery to be prepared for that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And it did hit. Oh, yeah. And how did you handle that? Did you have a little depression or anxiety? I think, I think it was more depression and like kind of self-worth stuff. Like, what am I really here to do? Like, I've called myself a runner and an athlete all these years, mm -hmm. but is that really all I am? Because when you strip that away, is there just nothing left after that? It was hard. And I was in a relationship at the time. Um, he wasn't very supportive of me doing the donation, but he was my support person anyway. So it's kind of one of those, I wish you wouldn't do this, but I wouldn't tell you not to. But then was resentful about having to take oh, time off so to tough. help me. And But he actually did a good job of helping me talk through that stuff. Uh -huh. And, you know, he encouraged me to do things I wouldn't think of. Like he actually encouraged me to do like some watercolor painting and some photography stuff because I like that. And so he helped that. So coming through that, I'm like, wow, I'm not just an athlete. I'm just, I'm a creative, compassionate person. And whatever way that right. shows up, like, that's who I am. Being a runner is not who I am, it's what I do and what I love, but. All right, let's talk hard. about this. This is a big topic. It's how we identify ourselves, the mm. titles we give ourselves, oh, yeah, how they change, 
how they're often the things we do, not who we are. Mm -hmm. When people ask, what do you do? Well, that's okay. But no one ever asks, like, who are you? Right. (laughs) So let's ask. Let's start with that. Who are you today? (laughs) Who were you? Who are you? Like, what? how have you evolved? Oh, man. I mean, at the base of everything, I think who I am is just someone that's curious and always seeking. I'm, I'm a pretty restless person, to be honest. Like, I'm wired to be restless. I can savor and enjoy moments, but I'm always going some kind of direction with it, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. I will tell you, one of my biggest fears in life is stagnation. Oh, I know. Now you're sweating. I'm putting you I am getting all These fired up. Questions. <laughs> She's taking off her sweater. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I totally, I get that. Mm-hmm. Stagnation is scary to me. Yeah. But there are times in our lives when we have to kind of just hang out in a place of, not forward motion mm-hmm. while we figure out the next thing and it sounds like that's where you were yeah because like physically a, you were stuck too you were slowed down yeah but it was a really good launch pad i mean looking at that like those stagnant times i now call them launch pads because you're just kind of getting ready for the next thing and so i consider that one of my launch pads and that was really trying to get honest with myself of what i really wanted i mean because i had a whole month off of work and i could just do whatever i wanted so i started really diving into more podcasts and reading more books and just spending time in the woods you know i would hike four miles and then you get really tired out of nowhere so you sit on a stump for an hour and you're just kind of there with your thoughts so thinking about okay what am i going to do with this like what do i want to be next what are the biggest things i want to change you know, so it gave me a lot of time to think about that kind of stuff. You know, I think it really rolls into a blog post you wrote not too long mm. ago. Uh, you hashtagged hold the pen. Yes. And uh, I just love this concept of the fact that we can all hold the pen. We can all be the author of our own lives. In fact, mm. not we. it's not that we can be that. We are that. Mm-hmm. And we forget that we are that. Right. Because as soon let- as we stop doing it, other people are holding it for us. And, right. I mean, everybody wants certain things from us or would like to leverage us in some way. And it, it sounds kind of terrible, but it's true. I mean, say if you work for a, a corporation, your boss really probably wants you to stay in that job or to do certain things, even if maybe you don't like it. Or maybe the person you're with, like, you know, it's not the right thing. And so you're just kind of stagnant and hanging out there and you're not holding your pen. So the other person is by default. So other people are coming up with your course for you. You're not if you don't hold it and wow. think about it. And I love... This idea, because there's probably a lot of people listening that think, oh my gosh, like I've never really thought about authoring my life. What would that look like? And it's scary to ask yourself that question and not have an immediate answer, but being able to sit in the space of that question. And now you might not know for six months what you really want your life to look like, and it's fine. But just ask the question and just sit there. Like it'll come. It does come. Yeah. But that's the thing. It does. It's about having faith Mm -hmm. that it will come, that life will start to move again. Right. That's hard for people. It is. And to see their own power to make that happen. It's, right. It's, especially in people's language, you can hear people don't think they have a lot of power to author their life or to make their own choices. Because you hear people say, like, I have to go to work. I have to pick the kids up. I have to do this. It's like, you choose all those things. Mm-hmm. It feels like an obligation. Right. But you know what? You don't have to go to work. You just don't want to deal with the consequences of not showing up to work today. Like you could ask someone else to pick up your child so you can go to a yoga class or just sit under a tree if you want. You could. You're choosing right, to pick your kid up. And how do we reframe even just those simple sentences from I have to go to work, what do you say? I choose to. I choose to. Yeah. I get to. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of 
power in the language. And so I, I worked with a development coach for a while, starting back in the end of 2014, and he helped me notice certain things that I would say. So anytime I would say I can't or I wish or someday or I have to, like those were the big four. I would pause, be like, oh, why am I saying that? Let's repeat those. Oh gosh. I can't. I can't, I wish, someday, or I have to. And so what were the reframes or the, how did he get you onto from a more negative path? Or I don't even know what, how you would phrase these to a path of optimism. Yeah. Well, like one live example I could use with I can't is it was summer of 2015 and I was talking with a friend of mine who was living out in Italy for like a year and a half because her husband was stationed there in the Air Force. And we're messaging and she says, oh, you should come out here. It's our last summer here. You've always said you want to come to Europe. I said, oh, I can't do that. And right in my tracks, I stopped. I'm like, oh, like, why am I saying that? Like, why do I think I can't do that? So then I paused and I talked it through with him. I'm like, well, I think it's money. And I also don't know if I have the courage to come to a foreign country. She's like, why don't you just sit and just think about this for a day or something? I'm like, okay, well, my can't really is around money. So then I wrote it out and this and that. I'm like, well, I can't. Like, it doesn't have to be that expensive. I'm blowing it up in my head and using that as an excuse. So the next day I booked my ticket and I went three months later by myself for two weeks. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, the next time any of us say, I can't, <laughs> mm-hmm. stop in your head, like trigger it, do something. What can we do? Clap, you know, yeah. make, make a noise <laughs> and um, and stop yourself in your own head and then analyze that can't. Yeah. What is the reason behind that? Yeah. And I think a lot of times for, for people that think that or say that, it's because they think of someone else's opinion. Like, yes. oh, they wouldn't like me too. They wouldn't right. like, but who is they? It's like a Martha Beck totally. exercise to go through that and identify uh-huh. who they really is. Should they really have the power in your life to choose that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about something that many people will say I can't to, which is running ultras. Ah. And running in general. So you've been running since middle school. Yeah. We opened with that. Mm-hmm. Um, did running, did you keep running through high school and even in college? I did, but... I don't like being told what to do. So I didn't like the team aspect. I didn't like being coached. I I ran for my own very personal reasons, and it wasn't to bring home hardware for the high school. I didn't give a shit about that. Like I ran because it made me better. It cleared my head. I felt in control and adventurous and anonymous at the same time, you know, to go out in the yeah. woods and no one knows where you are. And it was a freedom I'd never had before. You know, there's like um, as much as you've tried to you tried to stay in the background when you were a kid and, you know, you went through your journey. You've also had quite a rebellious side to your thoughts as well. I have. Yeah. There, yeah. There's been an undercurrent of rebellion for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I was um, subtle in how I would show that to the world. <laughs> yes. But I love your perspective on the world. And you know, sitting across from you, I hear it and I see it and I feel it. Other people are going to read your blog and they're going to know immediately who you are because mm-hmm. you just put it out there. Yeah. And so with, let's go back to running here. So with running, does running help you maintain that like clarity mm-hmm. in your perspective on the world? It does. It's, I love going out and running a bunch of miles and I, I don't like music. I don't listen to podcast or anything I just go out and I listen to nature and I love hearing my footfalls and just seeing where my mind goes so that's that's where I dream and where I do like my mental adventures to get ready for the next thing and just kind of like Spencer with looking at the sky I like to marvel and wonder and contemplate and and things always rise to the top when I'm doing that oh yes running is the number one place that I do that 
Wow. So you actually hit like a runner's high. A lot of times, yeah. Wow, that yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Um, so so you've decided that running, you know, 5Ks or whatever wasn't good enough in college. You ran your first marathon. Is that right? Um, it was just after college. So it was yeah. in 04. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was because um, I was working. I was managing a tanning salon of all things. And the woman at the little office next door like she was talking about oh that's just crazy these people that run marathons like that's just nuts and of course in my mind i'm like well, well i'm gonna do one then okay i <laughs> am never seeing considered it. <laughs> here's your thread oh who gives kidneys you couldn't do that who runs marathons they're crazy yeah this is guess what? i don't like being told i can't <laughs> what or is i shouldn't <laughs> i guess but you know where does that come from huh I don't know. I just feel like I've always been that way. Maybe some of that too is the seeing the level of my dad trying to control my mother, and I wanted to be the exact opposite. Yeah, like good freaking luck putting me under your thumb because you can't. Like it's not possible. Well, and think about it. You don't like being told you can't, but you spent a lot of time in your life saying I can't. And then you had to reframe that. Yeah, it was like so other people's like, voices became my own self-talk. Yes. And it wasn't until I paused and really examined my thoughts and what I would say. Like those common words that we Got say. Because we all yes. have these words that we go to. And if we just, it's kind of a Tony Robbins thing. But like to take those out of our vocabulary uh-huh. and insert more powerful ones, it changes everything. It does. Yeah. So, okay, so then uh, you got into, wow, you got into (laughs) running long miles and you made your way out here to Colorado. You broke up with the husband. It just didn't work, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And here you are today having given a kidney and then coming back maybe against all odds from a lot of people's perspective and running a 50 miler this summer. Yeah. And it was such... It was such an amazing experience and doing all this post donations, like my relationship with my body is totally different. Like wow. I'm so much more respectful of it. And like I'm I'm partnering with this now. I'm not sitting or telling it what to do or chastising it because that. And it, I mean, just in the running part itself, it was, I got emotional a lot. Anytime I did a run that was beyond about 20 miles, I actually teared up almost every time because it was joy in those miles and respecting that my body could do that. Wow. I love this idea of partnering with your body. Mm-hmm. We fight our bodies. I know we're so mean to them. Why and like do we this do is that? like the one vessel that we have. And so much I think is just that comparison bullshit. Like we're all we all do to varying degrees, but also recognizing those thoughts and stopping and being like, you know, because I, I had one of those moments that was a week before I went to Mexico. And here here Spencer is like the only real fit athletic guy I've ever dated. I've always been the fit one. So I kind of had the stuff in my head. Like, and he's, eh. he's a really good athlete. Oh, yeah. He's extremely talented. Yeah, so like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've never been in that. Like, well, I'm going to be strutting around with this half Ironman stud. And, like, and I'm in a swimsuit and not feeling like the fit one. And I walked past a mirror and I looked at myself. And out loud, I said, I'm just, I could be the fittest I've ever been. And I wouldn't be happy with my torso. And I stopped in my tracks. I'm like, holy shit, how many times have I said that? in my life yeah and i just kind of did a mental tally it's like how much time have i wasted thinking stuff like that and just never even noticing the things i think we all have things that we do like but how often do we think about those like almost never okay so right now Mm -hmm. you have the most like vivacious smile i've ever seen boom (laughs) yeah take that in and hold that close yeah and it feels good because i have to say like in mexico this last week and i told spencer this our last day it's the only time in my life i've ever been comfortable in a swimsuit was over this last week it's just like recognizing how shitty we are to ourselves and we're so 
I know. I, like I would never want you to hear you say that to yourself or anybody else, but we do it to ourselves. We do. And not even noticing. I think it does take time and maturity to love and accept. And mm. sometimes it takes imperfection, accepting imperfection and knowing that there is no perfect. Yeah. Like imperfect is the new perfect. Right. So for, for me, after having a baby is when I completely ah. accepted because my body's totally different too. And to anybody watching from the outside, and they can say this of you and me and a lot of people who look relatively fit, what's she talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, but we all have it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, because it's hard to see ourselves as we really look. I think, you know, and like body dysmorphia is a real thing, but I think varying Mm -hmm. degrees on that scale, we all have those certain things that we just don't see them as they are. You're right. Yeah. And it's how you look. Does that even matter? Oh, it so doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like 40 years from now, if we're sitting here talking over like whatever the new technology is like yeah. we're not going to be sitting there like trying to suck our stomachs in and like no. fix our hair you're not sucking it in right now are you no because i'm not no <laughs> i'm not even wearing a bra today so there boom we're getting cozy over here <laughs> well um you know you just you are someone who is constantly on the quest for growth and self-improvement which i read as more levels and layers of self-love mm-hmm. um i your recent your most recent post on your blog is really awesome because you're like i'm just going to try three new things because my sleep needs to become a priority mm-hmm. right yeah and so you say like i'm going to try essential oil i'm going to lower the temperature in my room right mm-hmm. so you're not sweating your eyes. i thought by the way i sweat like every night in the middle <laughs> of the night too but i have for years but i always thought wow am i just on menopause for like 15 <laughs> years like way too early yeah but i think it's the temperature and then you said guided meditation mm-hmm. these are like comfort zone things for a lot of people Right? Yeah. But what I read from that post was that you're just constantly exploring. Yeah. And you're willing to put it out there and try new things. I'm very recently willing to put it out there because I realized, again, through talking with Spencer, is that I do all the stuff and I'm always working on things, but I don't give voice to that stuff. It's just how I'm wired. I'm always, I always have these projects. I'm tinkering. Like, I'm a chronic tinkerer with things in my life and yeah. my thoughts and my surroundings and what I'm doing and my habits and my books and everything. It's so like, why don't I just share that? Because if there's one thing I love, like honestly, even more than running, is stuff to do with intentional living and just being on this earth, part of my language, on fucking purpose because we want to and we're going to make this what we want it to be. But I don't share the nuggets. And I think people get frozen up about it because they think it's this big daunting thing. No, like, You can just tinker with one thing. Yeah. Just notice every time you say you can't this week. Right. Start there. Yeah. And then put some essential oils on and you'll be really happy. (laughs) I Um, I love that stuff. I'm kind of getting into that a little bit. (laughs) Well, those are easy. You just put them on and they're there. Yeah. Guided meditation. That's that's not necessarily easy. Actually, like if you just do the app, like the Headspace uh-huh. app, I'm a big fan of that. Like 10% Happier, that app is great. You know, I've I've started Headspacing as well. Oh, good. I tried it. It took me four months to get through the first 10. Because <laughs> yeah. it's about finding the time. Mm-hmm. And once you're out there, half of the time, I'm doing, what, three minutes on meditation. It, I never get anywhere with it. So I okay. come in and I'm like, whoa, did I actually go anywhere? Did my mind actually release? But it doesn't matter. Right. It does not matter at all Mm-mm. if you feel like you meditated or not because you're you're trying and you're starting and you're training yourself. Right. To find a new space. Right. 
Yeah, just the act of even finding the five minutes for it. Even if your mind is thinking right. about like bacon and groceries and the bed's not made. Like our right. our brains are made to think. So to sit right. to think like, oh, I'm just gonna pause for five minutes and not think is so unrealistic, but it's starting to at least slow down. Yeah. Is what makes a difference. It does. Yeah. So it's committing. Yeah. It's committing. And just and trying. Like it doesn't have to be a big thing. It like, doesn't. None of this stuff does. It doesn't have to be a big thing. And you should have pretty much um what do you call it uh, when you're when you're really gripping on the result, right? Like mm-hmm. no no attachment to right. the end game. Yes. Who cares? Right. Um, because you don't know. There's there's nothing to know. It's like doing your first race. Yes. Anytime you ever do anything for the first time, just let it be. Right. How cool is that? I know. It's liberating. It's a lot it's less pressuring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Tracy, we have gone. Um, we're coming down here to the end. You are such a incredible person, a bright light. I mean, you really oh, are. So and, are you. And I feel like a cyclone in this room. Oh, just fun right now. Doing. It's great. <laughs> I forgot to get any video. I'm going to have to do that here. Um, so, you know, we should probably lead in because we've gone almost an hour here to the final question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, which is if you can give our listeners one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, oh. what would your nugget be? Man, I didn't do my homework for this. One nugget for your listeners. I think it goes back to the hold the pen. Just live on purpose and just start with even something small. Like if you say, you know, I've always wanted to do something nice for myself, like have nice sheets, but I keep going to Walmart and getting these shit ones. Like just go buy a set of really nice sheets or budget for it and get it when you can afford it. You know, just to start doing some of those things you've always said someday about. You know, because once it really is a a snowball. Because once you do the first one, you think, oh, what other thing can I do? That wasn't so hard. And it's a snowball. Yeah, and you end up in a life that you actually wanted, not one that you ended up in and drifted into. I love that because mm-hmm. we all need to embrace the fact that we can control our lives. Yeah. Not control them, but we can, uh, like you said, write our own journeys. Yeah, we can be intentional about where we're going. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and embrace it. Yeah. Thanks for coming out today. This was so fun. When's your next race? Um, not till the Eugene Marathon in April. I'm going to do some local ones around here just for speed work, but awesome. I, I've never tried to run a fast marathon. So I want to do that because I want to get long, faster over the long stuff. Cool. So I'm going to do Eugene and awesome. see what I can do. All right, we'll be, we'll be uh, whooping it up for you. Oh, thank you. Cool. <laughs> Here's what I love about this episode. It's not what I was expecting. So I, I don't usually have a lot of expectations, but you know, I kind of thought Tracy would be sharing more about her kidney donor experience, like kind of like a kidney donor evangelist, you know, pretty much focused on sharing that experience and recruiting other people. But what we found today is a beautiful spirit stumbling her way through this world just like the rest of us and someone who actually does what her soul pushes her to do. I love her quote, I'm hardwired for optimism. I think we should all adopt this mentality at least for one day. When you go immediately to the dark side, when you immediately say, no, I can't, stop in your tracks and reroute. Just do it, do it for one day to start and change it to yes, I can. You can if you want to, you can. (laughs) 
you always could and you still can. If you're someone who generally sees the negative first, it's going to take a little longer <laughs> to reroute you. But I, I always uh, take a cue from our old friend George Costanza. <laughs> Remember that Seinfeld episode where he did the exact opposite of what he usually does and he had like the best life doing it? So I say try it. Pull a Costanza. And if you're like Tracy and you are hardwired for optimism already, then don't keep it to yourself. Share it with the world. Maybe that means more smiles, more hugs. Maybe it means giving a kidney. You know, and if that's the case, be sure to check out the show notes and get in touch with Tracy because this podcast episode may be that thing, that thing that happened to Tracy when she was 12 years old. Maybe you're hearing it today right now and you're realizing, oh my gosh, something weird is tugging inside of me. This is what I need to do next. You know, at the end of the day, here's what I say. This world is a better place because Tracy Hulick is in it, and I'm sure you feel the same. All right, then. That is it for today. Episode 115 is a wrap. Well, you know what time it is, then. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.